This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff and I'm here, here today, Kurt. It's a big day with with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. Kurt, great to see you. It is great to see you. Obviously, the listeners don't know this, but I'm actually sitting across the table from you. We are recording (laughs) in person at 100F Street Northeast in Washington, D.C., Many of our listeners will know that is the SEC's headquartered building. Some will think of it fondly, others might not so, but we'll talk about some of those topics as we get through today, Kurt. Uh, it's been a while, I think almost three years since the last time we recorded in person here uh, here at the SEC. Yeah, it's exciting to be back. We're very excited to be with Commissioner Jaime Lazariga today. We're going to be talking about some important issues. We'll talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. We're going to talk a little bit about investor protection, including the commissioner's thoughts on how the SEC might protect the estimated one in five Americans who own digital assets. But before we get into that, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about the commissioner? Jaime Lazarigo was sworn in as an SEC commissioner on July 18th of 2022, having been nominated by President Joe Biden to serve on the commission and unanimously confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Throughout his 32-year career in public service, Commissioner Lazarga has advised congressional leaders and heads of executive agencies on policy and legislative strategy. Indeed, before joining the commission, Commissioner Lazarga served as a senior advisor to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. In that role, he oversaw issues related to financial markets, small businesses, and international finance, among other issues. He also previously served on the Democratic staff of the House Financial Services Committee, which oversees the work of this SEC. Commissioner Lazarga also served as Speaker Pelosi's liaison to the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Commissioner Lazarga, welcome to Insecurities, and thank you for hosting us here at the SEC's HQ. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Kurt. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm pleased to, to, to host you. To be the first to do so in, in such a long time, it, it's great to be here in person. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to your audience. I know you've hosted a number of former SEC commissioners as well as current ones, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm honored to be here today and to contribute to to the ongoing discussion. And as you've heard many times before, mm-hmm. <laughs> our favorite. Yeah, here we go. My, my disclaimer here: my views are my own and not those of my fellow commissioners or of commission staff. Thanks for that disclaimer, Commissioner. Now, in your bio, we reduced your professional background and experience, including 32 years of public service, to just a few lines. But there's obviously a larger story, and we'd like to know more. Tell us about your road to becoming an SEC Commissioner. I took a meandering path to the SEC twice. Prior to being confirmed as a Commissioner, I worked at the SEC in the Legislative Affairs Shop in the late 90s. As a graduate student in public policy at the University of Texas at Austin, I dreamed of living in D.C. at the center of national policymaking. This is an exciting place to be for for anybody in the policy world. So an agency called the General Accounting Office, it's now called the Government Accountability Office. Near and dear to my heart. (laughs) (laughs) Recruited me to be a program evaluator. And that organization was largely made up of accountants at the time. Mm -hmm. And we were schooled very early on on 
generally accepted government auditing standard. And I learned a lot about government accountability there. And one of my first assignments there was a review of a law called the Public Utility Holding Company Act of 1935. That was my first foray into the world of the SEC. And as you may know, this law gave the SEC the authority to regulate electric utility holding companies. It was eventually repealed in 2005. It's not in the books anymore. But after a couple of years at GAO, I had much exposure to Capitol Hill and I grew very curious about it. And when an opportunity to work on loan from GAO to the House Energy and Commerce Committee arose, I seized it. This is the committee that at the time, in the early 1990s, oversaw the SEC. You mentioned now that the House Financial Services Committee oversees mm-hmm. the SEC, that the jurisdiction changed at mm-hmm. some point. But once I got a taste of Hill life, there was just no turning back from <laughs> I love the institution, its immediate and substantial impact on policy, its direct connection to the public, to the public interests, the intensity, the pace, the wide range of experiences and the numerous opportunities to play a role in so many historic legislative accomplishments. And that, that includes several laws that I now see implemented every day as commissioner, from the Sarbanes-Oxley Act to the Dodd-Frank Act and, and several others. In total, I ended up working on the Hill for more than a quarter century, both in committee and subsequently in leadership as a senior advisor to Speaker Pelosi, as you mentioned. There were brief interruptions in there for both personal and professional reasons. I worked in legislative affairs at the Treasury Department during the Clinton administration and then here at the SEC, as I mentioned, in the early 90s. Then I took a sabbatical. My wife was a Foreign Service officer. Mm. And I accompanied her to Panama, where she served there with the State Department. After that experience, which ended up being brief, we ended up both returning to the Hill. We just, this is right after, not not too long after 9-11, actually. Mm -hmm. And I came to the House Financial Services Committee, where I stayed for a decade. And my last stint there was with Chairman Barney Frank. Mm -hmm. And I followed it with nearly 15 unforgettable and enormously consequential years with Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And here we are now. That's a, a much more detailed and interesting version than, than what I said in the bio of just a 32-year <laughs> public service career, right? Right. Well, when you try to condense it all exactly. into just a few sentences, right? You know, it, it's interesting. I think, you know, that experience is unique in the sense that you've done a lot of different things here in government. But one of the things that I think has maybe anchored you has always been within you're within touching distance of the SEC. I suspect, though, when you're on the Hill, that maybe your view of the SEC or of the role of a commissioner is a little bit different than maybe when you were actually over here sitting in that chair. You know, when you're on the Hill, you have commissioners coming before you to give testimony or answer questions, right? It's a little bit different now. But I guess I'd be interested to hear what were your views or what were your thoughts on the role of a commissioner before you took this job? So it's a very good question. And frankly, not much surprised me. And I had a bit of an unfair advantage because I had worked here before. And granted, it was a lot different than being a commissioner. But I was well acquainted with the SEC's responsibilities, its mission. But what I can't tell you is what surprises my friends and family. Like many people, their exposure to the SEC is through the media and in movies. And (laughs) we're sometimes portrayed as the cops on the beat there that, you know, who arrest bad actors and where there's a narrative of a financial scam or market misconduct. And enforcement is no doubt an essential part of what we do here. But arresting wrongdoers is not on our purview. That's just something we often need to clarify, right? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, what, what surprises people the most is the extensive effort that goes into rulemakings and the importance of rulemaking in terms of how they govern the day-to-day of financial markets and how important rulemaking is for the smooth functioning of our markets and for the protection of investors. And it, I just can't understate that. And it's a part of the process that 
doesn't make it into the movies, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but not in the way that Hollywood finds appealing. But it's enormously consequential. And it has an enormous impact on, on people every day, on our markets. And a lot of work and thought goes into that process. And it also provides for extensive and meaningful public input. Mm -hmm. Chris designed this process deliberately and designed it to be independent, to act as a check and balance on our markets. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is also a power that's subject to check and balance too, through the procedural requirements of the rulemaking process and ultimately through judicial review. I was last here in the late 1990s, as I mentioned, and I served as deputy director of the Office of Legislative Affairs under Chairman Arthur Levitt. I appreciated then, continue to appreciate today, the importance of the SEC's responsibility to protect the public. It's a very important responsibility. And to me, it's very reassuring to witness again firsthand the commitment to public service and to the mission of the agency by those who work here, then and now, that's remained a constant. They have a deep connection and commitment to investor protection and to helping ensure that our markets are the most resilient in the world. And I think also that it's great to see that our work here is supported by deep experience in implementing our, our federal securities laws. And the other interesting aspect of this is the work here is not simple or easy, it's challenging. Mm -hmm. And it involves a lot of very difficult choices, dealing with very complex issues, and a lot of pressures from a variety of outside stakeholders. Mm. The choices we face involve a lot of trade-offs, internal debates about the when, the what, the why of a particular policy choice. But I think that the general issues the commission grappled with back then in the late 1990s are the same or very similar to the issues we face today. The role of technology, capital formation, financial modernization, international harmonization, abuses in the market, mm -hmm. investor protection, market risks, mm -hmm. the availability of relevant disclosures to investors, some, just, just a handful of those issues, right? Those, those issues are still here. And I know we'll, we'll be discussing some of That's these right, in more right. detail a little bit down the line. But I also think that it's important to note the size of our markets, their complexity, and the reliance on technology and interconnectedness with other financial hubs around the world has changed drastically in the last two decades. Mm -hmm. I always tell the story of when I visited Wall Street in the late 90s to my counsels and others who, who were willing to hear my, my stories. And I remember hearing traders tell me the dot-com bull market is gonna, it's gonna last forever. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> and throughout my career, it's one of several asset bubbles I've seen burst. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so some things, Never change, right? That's right, right. And it's great to be able to bring that perspective here. So, but on, on a fundamental level, I, I think it's an important contribution to my role as commissioner. And it helps me fulfill the agency's responsibility under the law to protect mm -hmm. investors and to honor the trust that the public places in all of us to protect their interests mm -hmm. above all others. Yeah, yeah. All right, so you've, you've talked a little bit about how maybe there are some consistencies uh, but you know between what you observed in the late 90s when you were here and some of the things that you're you're seeing now and you've also talked about the consequential work that the commission does and particularly with respect to rulemaking i suspect though it's a little bit different now that you you're actually a commissioner right the, the job's a little bit different so how would you describe the role of an sec commissioner you know, I spent a career on the hill advising my boss on votes i now have a vote as commissioner and that has really changed my perspective mm -hmm. about the more theoretical view I had of it and the more distant view. It's one thing to advise, it's quite another, to cast a vote and to appreciate the responsibility that comes with that. And 
as I've had the opportunity to cast votes here, and granted, casting a vote here is very different from casting a vote in the House. I don't mm. need to equate the two. They're just, uh, we do different things. But my experience here in these few months has cemented in my mind how important it is for us to you know, protect investors and elevate their interests above mm -hmm. all other interests. So to me, the, the, the answer is, to the question is quite simple. I'm, my, the role is to remain laser focused on protecting mm. investors. And when the commission was created back in 1934, or ever since, commissioners and the chair have played a very pivotal role in shaping the commission's oversight of our markets. And we continue to play that role here every day in our input to rulemakings and our, you know, the value that we bring from the perspective that we offer in all the proceedings that we engage in here. So, and you've heard some of my, you know, what I bring in terms of my experience. And if you also go back to history, you know, 1934, it's always important to remember the reason the SEC was created. It was created because of the rampant abuses and practices in the marketplace. Yeah. And there was no authority at the federal level to protect investors from those practices. So thankfully, our country is better off now having nearly a century old framework in place. And as commissioner, I see my role as continuing to perfect that framework through updating our rules and other important adjustments. And central to that is ensuring that the public is protected and has the tools needed to invest in fair and transparent markets. I always like to say that Congress gave us three superpowers, an extensive disclosure framework and other levers that protect investors, a system of rules that makes our markets fair and transparent, and a responsibility to promote capital formation. And these three key components of our mission taken together makes the mission vast significantly. Yes. I remember when I first started preparing for my confirmation hearings, I had a couple of conversations with Chair Gensler and he mentioned to me, the scope of this agency is just vast and mm -hmm. no one can truly get their arms around it, even if they tried. It's mm. <laughs> <laughs> and that he's absolutely right. I mean, it's been quite a, a learning experience from that perspective. I, I knew it going in, but it's quite another to see it from a distance and another mm -hmm. thing to see it up close. So, but at the same time, it's an indication of how important it is and how significant that it, it is to the public. So my role here, I see, is just continuing to strengthen that mission and strengthening transparency promoting market integrity. And it's an immense responsibility that I take very seriously. I think we should always be at the forefront of ensuring that our mission is being fulfilled and strengthened. And we have to make sure that retail investors have the tools that they need to make informed investment decisions and ensure that our markets are fair and transparent. Commissioner, you talked a bit about your winding road to get to, to the commission here, mm -hmm. but there you've demonstrated some through lines, right, in your work, both with the SEC prior, as well as in, in many positions on the Hill, both advising and, and with leadership. You know, what would you say are some of the core values that have kind of stuck with you through through this winding journey and continue to inform the important and relatively vast uh, you know oversight of the agency today? I love that question, because... I think, I think Kurt wrote it, so that's probably why you like it. <laughs> it's a great opportunity to talk about things that matter so much to me. And these are basic principles. Fairness, <laughs> equality of opportunity, a level playing field, inclusion, and compassion. As commissioners who lead the agency, we have an enormous responsibility to safeguard the public trust and, and to place the public interest and that of working families above all others. Mm -hmm. I myself 
came from a, a working family and know what that's like. So, and I see my role here as a public servant of 32 years. I've owned, my entire professional career has been as a public servant. Mm -hmm. And I believe strongly that our responsibility is to protect their interests above all. And I also think as a policy person who came from a policy school, <laughs> policy carries the power to protect working families from harm. I believe very strongly in that power. And my life experiences have shaped and informed that belief, both professional and personal. I grew up in an immigrant working class family in Southern California. And my parents, who were immigrant farm workers, actually, when I first came to, to, our, to our country, struggled to learn how to figure out the system in America. Mm -hmm. And for many reasons. They found it difficult to access financial services. They had a limited entry into knowledge about growth capital for their small business that they ran out of their home. And they couldn't quite empower themselves to fully, fully succeed in a competitive market that isn't always inclusive and that didn't cater to their unique circumstances. So as a congressional staffer, as a public servant, I was deeply immersed in these, these types of issues and, and also in the 2008 financial crisis, which was an unforgettable experience. It had a huge impact on my outlook, on policy. It was life-changing. I remember during the first House vote on the TARP legislation, I was standing next to the speaker on the House floor, and I read off to her, you know, the constant drop in the market index. Minute by minute, the markets were tumbling precipitously mm -hmm. in anticipation of that vote failing for the first time. It was, it was quite an experience, and of course, you know, we, we then spent two years, the better part of two years, negotiating to put together legislation to prevent a financial crisis of that magnitude from ever occurring again. And that gave birth to the Dodd-Frank Act. Mm -hmm. So on the Dodd-Frank Act, it took the strong commitment of President Obama, Speaker Pelosi, and other leaders in Congress to ensure that we as a country would never again, again face mm -hmm. what we faced. Now, I always remind people that those, those times were so challenging for our country trillions of dollars of losses in household wealth, taxpayer-funded bailouts to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars, millions of foreclosures, and a substantial loss in confidence in our markets. So the Dodd-Frank Act was aimed at protecting people against this type of catastrophe. Now, as a husband, as a father of five children, I understand the need for those protections in another way. I, like many families out there, know what it's like to save up to buy a home and to try every month to set, it, set aside some money for, for our kids' college funds. Like everyone, I want to feel that the money I'm saving is safe so that I can plan for those long-term dreams like many working families in America do. So mm -hmm. my personal and professional experiences combined have strengthened my conviction that elevating the interests of working families is our most important responsibility. And I have and will continue to help shape our rules to be as protective of them as possible. I always think of investing as a an unoptimistic way of ch channeling one, one's hopes for the future. Mm -hmm. It represents an opportunity for people to build wealth, and, but it also carries risks. And that's where we come in. Families invest in our markets to save for college, to buy a home, save for retirement. In essence, they want to achieve the American dream. Yeah. yeah. And it's our responsibility to protect them and to work on their behalf. So I think that each part of our mission directly impacts millions of working families out there. And there are many ways for us to help them. And I think one key way to do that is to ensure that investors are protected through robust enforcement. It's a strong deterrent to misconduct. Misconduct harms, tends to harm the least able to protect themselves. So it's, it's so essential, I think. We also have to ensure through all the tools that we have available that 
investors are fully informed so they can make the most informed investment decisions possible. To me, an informed investor is a protected investor and one who's best positioned to build long-term wealth. I'll tell you something that may or may not surprise you, but a family member recently asked me for advice on how to search for an investment professional. And this person was not aware that discount brokers and investment advisors have different obligations to mm -hmm. investors. Yeah. And my guess is that distinction is probably lost on millions of people out there, but it's an important one because it comes with different layers of protection. So what I did, as I often do with, with people who ask me this kind of question, I referred this family member to a website that's part of our agency called Investor.gov. It's dedicated solely to providing the public with key information to make the most informed investment decisions. Did, do you all know about this website? I do. I actually will say that if there's a term that Kurt uses that I don't understand, <laughs> it is on my list of places to go. Go find and seek that out. Yeah, I, I, I'm familiar with it as well. Sometimes, I, you know, I like to look to see what, what the commission or the staff have said about mm. particular rules or regulations that are out there as I'm, you know, representing a client trying to figure out maybe how I want to position, a, you know, a, an argument with oh, the staff or think about an obligation that a client might might have. And mm -hmm. so I think it's a very helpful website in that respect. There's just an incredible amount of information available there. Oh, that's great to hear. That's great feedback. I'm, it, it's encouraging to hear you say that. And there's even a Spanish language version of that website. And it has, as you pointed out, Kurt, great resources on a range of financial questions. Uh, there are financial calculators, ways of understanding fees. Fees are obviously such an important component yeah. of investing. Different types of investment products, compound interest. What, you know, yeah, the power. fundamental mm -hmm. concept that we all should be incredibly familiar with in all of our lives, right? Tips for avoiding investment fraud. And as my family member asked me about, information on, on selecting investment professionals, someone you want to work with, that you're, you're, you have the confidence in, 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 in trusting your, your hard-earned cash with, right? And there are many other resources, as you pointed out. So I'm glad to hear you say that you're mm -hmm. familiar with it. And I hope others out there will consult yeah. this important website. It is helpful. And we'll drop a link in the show notes for anybody who's not familiar so they can check it out. Let me also add that I think market participants can play an important role in investor protection. We put the rules in place and it's their responsibility to follow them. All that said, I also encourage market participants to reflect on whether they're providing key decision useful information to investors in an understandable way. Maybe, as you are going to do as part of this podcast, direct investors to the SEC's investor.gov <laughs> website. So that's fantastic. Thank you for that. I mean, and if some of our listeners, you know, out there get similar questions as, as you do, Commissioner, from friends and family, the Insecurities Podcast is also a great resource to explore <laughs> some of these more wonky or maybe even some fresh issues, oh, right, Kurt? Always be closing. Kurt. I, I don't so know if you can <laughs> plug your own podcast on your own podcast, yeah, but we did, did it. We did, did it. Yeah. So another interesting trend I've observed is the stark disparity in the attention that's paid to retail investors. There is a disproportionate focus on the interests of large, sophisticated, and well-funded market participants, but less attention on the interests of retail investors or small businesses or the public at large. So it goes back to what's a core value for me, ele elevating the interests of the public and smaller market participants. Those who can't afford to hire lobbyists or form trade associations, or otherwise gain access to the commission. So again, the public depends on us to look out for their interests, and I can't stress this enough. So it's also important not to lose sight of how, how essential transparency is for market integrity, and by extension for market stability. When there's investor harm in a market that isn't transparent, it does work against the goal of expanding long-term wealth building opportunities for investors. 
years from now, I'd like to be able to say that I kept the interests of retail investors and working families front and center, whether in rulemakings, enforcement cases, or any of the commission's actions. Um, and also that I was a staunch advocate for all of the commission's proactive efforts to protect investors. So I appreciate you giving us that you know, window into some of the values that you bring with you to your role as an SEC commissioner, as well as pointing up some of the particular issues that that you're interested in. And, you know, as you were talking, I had a thousand policy questions that we don't have time for today. But, you know, you're, you're hitting on a lot of the, the themes and, and talking points that we've discussed over the years here at the Insecurities Podcast. So it's interesting to see what you're focusing on. But, you know, we'd like to take a few minutes to talk about another area that we know is particularly interesting to you. And you hinted at it a moment ago in your remarks, but that is diversity, equity and inclusion. You've talked about this a few times since you've been a commissioner, including in your first published published remarks as an SEC commissioner at a meeting of the SEC's Small Business Advisory Committee in August 2022. You noted that the OASB's annual report found that the representation of women is steadily increasing on corporate boards and in the boards of venture-backed private companies. Several weeks later, in a speech titled Raising the Bar on Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, you cited an SEC Asset Management Advisory Committee report, which found that investors increasingly deem DEI, sorry, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. I don't think I noted that we might use an acronym, but <laughs> D- added to the bingo card. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> investors increasingly want DEI information that's material to their investment decisions. In your remarks, however, you noted that, according to a 2017 report, less than 1% of global assets under management was managed by women and minority-owned asset management firms. But, by way of comparison, and according to the 2020 U.S. Census, nearly 40% of the U.S. population identifies as a member of a racial or ethnic group, and women constitute slightly over half of the U.S. population. Those numbers just don't add up. Uh, I'll agree with that as the accountant here, Thank thank you. (laughs) And I think you're digging into these issues now in, in maybe a slightly different way than, than you have in the past, just by the nature of, of your role. But tell us a little bit about some of the DEI problems or challenges that you've observed in the financial services sector or in our capital markets more broadly, and, and why that matters. It matters a lot. And thank you for the question. There's no question in my mind about the value of DEI. It has long-term benefits to individuals, to firms, and to markets more generally. In my 32-year career in public service, DEI has served as a fundamental value that guides my work. And I was very active in in this space when I was on the Hill. And one of my particular points of pride is having been directly involved in the creation or the historic establishment of the House Office of Diversity and Inclusion Mm -hmm. that serves the entire House of Representatives. a slew of other diversity initiatives that preceded that. We also made some changes to the House Democratic Caucus rules to, re- to promote, promote House staff diversity. So I have a long history with this issue, and, and the numbers that you cite are, are very telling. And in, in my experience, we've seen some progress. There is much more awareness of the issue compared to when I first started working on it 20, 25 years ago. So that is a, you know, a positive development. But what I've learned throughout this experience is that it's a very challenging issue. It's a long-term exercise 
that ultimately has broad-based benefits for everyone, but we can't give up. Mm. We just have to keep, keep at it. And everyone plays a role here. Regulators, market participants, policy advocates, all the stakeholders who are involved in our world. They play a role, an instrumental role as messengers, but also through their actions and their visible commitments and their engagement with other market participants in, in the financial sector. I've seen some interesting coordinated efforts that are encouraging. I've seen some animosity towards these efforts. So at the end of the day, what matters here is being as constructive as possible. Uh, and I aim to do that in my work in this area. And just a few weeks ago, I, I participated in a, a talk at Penn State Dickinson Law School. And what really hit me about the invitation letter that came in, they cited all these Federal Reserve statistics on, on the wealth gap in our country. And on average, white household wealth is approximately one million. Hmm. With black and Latino and Latina households, it's slightly below 200,000. Huh. This is a significant problem. Yeah. And the roots of these disparities are longstanding and hundreds of years in the making. We all know that. But realistically, they're not going to be solved overnight. And the SEC has a limited set of tools to contribute to the overall solution. But we have an important role to play here. And I think we can do that by faithfully implementing our core mission and doing so hand in hand with robust efforts to address DEI challenges and finance. But let me use the Latino community for obvious reasons. <laughs> The Latino community in our country is 63 million strong, 19% mm. of the population, 13% of the civilian workforce, and 9.5% of the federal workforce. I think another interesting point to make here is that the, in the entire history of the SEC, only four commissioners out of more than 100 who have served have been Latino. Mm. And historically, Latino representation at the top ranks of any of the federal financial regulators has been either non-existent or very, very low. Currently, I am the only Latino serving in a leadership position as a principal in any of the federal financial regulators. I look forward to the day when I have company, quite mm, frankly. Of course. <laughs> and I hope that that happens at some point soon. But there are other groups that continue to be un underrepresented. It's not just Latinos and Latinas, both at senior levels and in the broader workforce, veterans, disabled persons, for example. And a similar lack of representation has been documented quite well in the financial industry overall, as I noted in my, mm -hmm. my CI speech. So I'm keenly aware of the challenge, and I'm also keenly aware that achieving meaningful pro progress on DEI in the financial sector can and will take time. But at the same time, there is an enormous untapped pool of diverse talent out there that can enrich organizations, financial markets, and our economy in a positive way. So the push for greater diversity and representation to me is a long-term project that is worthwhile and that will have broad-based benefits for everyone involved. You spoke a bit about what the SEC might do or, or can do. I'd like to drill down a little bit on that, uh, you know, specific to DEI and, and in your seat as a commissioner. You know, where do you see the SEC's role is in, in, in dealing with this, this DEI issue? And what kind of tools are at the commission's disposal to, to accomplish those goals or to improve the situation? To lead by example. Hmm. Elevating DEI to the forefront of our work at the commission is of particular relevance. 
And because the perspective of the federal financial regulators and the financial industry has historically lacked a more diverse presence at the, at the top, there's no doubt that elevating DEI is absolutely essential. It's relevant for bridging the wealth gap, for promoting broad-based capital formation that reaches the underserved communities that historically have been left out. And also, and this is a really important point, investors are demanding it. So I view my role in every decision I make here as commissioner through the lens of working families that are investing in their money in their, in their financial markets. And there are all types of investors and working families. Market participants benefit from being just as diverse as their investor base. So I'm committed to working here to meet the, meet the needs of our diverse investing public, including families in traditionally underserved communities, like the community that I grew up in. And there are some key questions to ask in this space at all times that I keep in the forefront of my mind. For example, how can our capital formation mission reach the smallest of the smallest businesses in our most underserved communities? so that they, like other businesses that are better served by the current system, also have the opportunity to meaningfully raise growth capital that lifts them and their communities from where they are now. I think that's a really important aspect to focus on. Mm -hmm. And using our investor protection tools, another question that is ever present is, how can we best promote safe investing while avoiding a disproportionate and an adverse impact on persons of color and low-income communities from marketplace abuses. I have to give credit to Chair Gensler, and I, I do this often because I think he deserves it, for his efforts to diversify the SEC's top leadership ranks. And I'm committed to continuing to work on this issue with my fellow commissioners, with Chair Gensler, and on any other initiatives that can elevate the issue. I also think it's important to, to note that in recognition of the importance of DI to our country, Congress gave us an additional tool in the Dodd-Frank Act. We now have an Office of Minority and Women Inclusion, and it's not just us. It's all the other federal agencies have one, too. And as for concrete efforts here at the Commission, our Office of Minority and Women Inclusion, or OMWI as it's known, has made great strides in building a diverse pipeline, establishing partnerships with universities and high schools, fostering an inclusive workplace culture, providing mentorship and professional development opportunities, and several other critical initiatives. So at the end of the day, to truly raise awareness and advance DEI here at the SEC, it takes demonstrated commitment and an, an extensive constructive engagement. So I, for one, will continue to focus on this issue going forward. Commissioner, it sounds like the SEC is definitely focused here, and there are some tools that have been been put in place recently that mirror your focus on DEI. But are there specific programs or initiatives that, that are being enacted or examples that you can point to about this important issue for the SEC? Yes. There are a few initiatives that I think are, are worth pointing out here. Board diversity is one of them. Studies have shown that diverse corporate boards outperform non-diverse boards. Diverse boards allow for the exchange of different perspectives, and this leads to more robust corporate governance and oversight. And it's an especially valuable, valuable asset in the interconnected global economy that businesses operate in today. And it's also not surprising that even greater numbers of investors are calling for more information on board diversity. One of the outgrowths of our work on disclosure here is that we systematize the clear disclosures on issues for investors, material issues for investors. And 
I think providing clear and standardized disclosures on diversity, whether gender, race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, on an individual basis for board members and nominees can provide investors with material information that will help them make more informed investment decisions when they approve vote, when they vote on approvals for board nominees. Workforce diversity is another one. It's very important to investors. It's no secret that employees are one of the most important assets for companies. Without standardized decision useful information on workforce demographics, investors don't see a complete valuation picture in my mind. Mm -hmm. So strong workforce investments can pay dividends in terms of innovation and growth, but also resilience and stability, especially as we face tight labor conditions and as we've seen markets experience in recent years. So I think a diverse workforce allows for a robust exchange of viewpoints and perspectives that can lead to better ideas overall. And let's face it, a happy worker is a much more productive worker. So all of these elements affect the comp company's bottom line and to me it makes it material to investors' investment decisions and investors want the information. At this point, I'm, I'm starting to pick up on a on a through line here with some of your commentary, and it, it has to do with investor protection. We've we've talked about it in pretty much every context so far, and I think it's critically important with respect to some of the DEI issues that you've raised as well. And naturally, it is at the heart of the SEC's three-part mission, which I think you called their three superpowers, right? Mm -hmm. But it, investor protection on some level is the mission, right? Mm -hmm. So let's just take a step back for a second. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on just, you know, when we talk about investor protection, what does that even mean? How should we imagine that, that concept? To me, the answer is quite, we have to protect investors from abuses in the marketplace, whether it happens in a retail brokerage with digital assets or anywhere else, it doesn't matter. And to me, it also means supporting and amplifying the voices that are not always heard and doing our best to protect them to the fullest. I think this is in line with the SEC's original mission. When the SEC was first formed, the main two purposes of the 1933 Securities Act and the 1934 Exchange Act were one, companies selling their securities must tell the truth about their business, their securities and their attendant risks, and two, those who sell securities must treat investors fairly and honestly. It's really worth reading the history from the period preceding enactment of these laws, if only to get a glimpse of the staggering and uncontrolled fraud and abuse that permeated the financial marketplace. So this framework is so important to protecting people. I mentioned early, and I, you alluded to my constant point about invest protection and working families. That is really, truly my North Star. And I, I approach our mission from the eyes of working families like my own. It also means working hard to ensure that we are fulfilling our congressional mandates to the fullest and as robustly as possible. It also means that we update our rules to keep up with technological change in our markets. It means facilitating capital formation for our job creating small businesses, again, particularly in underserved areas. Mm -hmm. I learned a lot about access to capital in underserved areas during the pandemic when I was on the Hill. And it really shaped my view about how important it is to focus on that in everything that we do. Ultimately, we serve the public and we have to do our best to ensure that our mission is fully reaching everyone that it needs to reach. It also, to me, means robust oversight of our capital markets and achieving and maintaining safe and transparent markets that foster a level playing field for all market participants. So 
anything that comes before me, I often ask, how will this action meaningfully protect investors? Does it erode their interest? Where do we need to adjust? Mm -hmm. And if you look at any of the rulemakings that are currently on our agenda, they all impact working families, climate, human capital, cybersecurity, digital assets, you name it. I think another important cornerstone of investor protection is enforcement. Enforcement is a really powerful deterrence tool. Keep in mind that the SEC has approximately 4,500 staff members, and they oversee a 100 trillion capital market, which represents 38% of the capital markets worldwide. It's, it's a, an enormous market. Mm. Yeah. That's almost half. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you think about that, there are 4,500 staff members overseeing this, and those are pretty limited resources relative to the size and the complexity of our capital markets. So it's a daunting task. And I, for one, I'm very strongly supportive of ensuring that those who conduct this important work, which is painstaking and it's often criticized, that they receive the support they, that they need. Because at the end of the day, they're serving the public, they're protecting the public. But let me just give you an example of some of the numbers that, that are involved here. The SEC filed last year, or in fiscal 2022, 760 total enforcement actions. That was a 9% increase over the prior year. And the money ordered in these SEC actions, that comprise civil penalties, disgorgement, prejudgment interest, amounted to almost $6.5 billion. That's the most on record in SEC history. And it also means that more money can go back to harmed investors and more incentives to deter wrongdoers by showing that we hold those who violate the federal securities laws accountable without fear or favor. That's a really important point. We do this in an, in an independent manner without fear or favor. So to me, in essence, strong enforcement is equal to investor protection. I, we always love it when enforcement comes up in these conversations. <laughs> it's our favorite. <laughs> right? yeah. And particularly when we get to talk about stats, which, That's right. as you know, some people don't want to talk about. But I, I appreciate you giving us a little bit of a guidepost we, there. I love numbers. We're all numbers people here. And yeah. they tell great stories. And they're important for perspective and context, right? That's right. I completely agree. It, you know, since you've been a commissioner, you've supported a number of SEC rules or rulemaking proposals. And we've talked, Chris, about how there have been quite a few that have been coming over the chance right. in the last couple Very of busy. years. Very busy, yeah. Uh, but a number of them actually bear on the investor protection issues that, that we're talking about. So you've supported a proposed rule on outsourcing by investment advisors, a final rule that would reduce the securities transaction settlement cycle from, for many securities from two business days or T plus two to one business day, T plus one. And you've supported a proposal to amend the SEC's custody rule to enhance protections of customer assets that are managed by registered investment advisors. So, you know, as I say, there's quite a lot going on in this space, but I wonder what you think the SEC should be doing or maybe what else they should be doing to further enhance investor protections? The agenda that we're implementing is one that I support and that I think gets at the heart of what we're here for. And our rules need to be updated. We need to keep up with developments and the extensive agenda that we hear often about and that some people think is too much, I actually think is appropriate and essential to ensure that rules are updated. Some of the rules that you highlighted really needed updating, and mm -hmm. there are several others on the agenda that fall in that, into that category. So this is part of our 
efforts to modernize and ensure that, that our markets are transparent, that our investors are receiving comparable and reliable disclosures on issues that matter to them. So one example of that is ESG. ESG issues continue to be at the heart of that. Investors with $100 trillion in assets under management have requested that companies disclose their climate, climate risks. And as you know, we have a very important climate rule on the docket with 15,000 public comments. It's, <laughs> the scope of it is significant. But according to the Governance and Accountability Institute, 96% of S&P 500 companies published sustainability information in 2021. Clearly, this is an issue that has become material to many investors and to many investment and voting decisions. So that's what we've tried to do with the issuer climate rule that has been proposed to provide standardization and comparability that investors are asking for. I wasn't here when the rule was proposed, but I would have supported it had I been here as proposed. We've also proposed ESG disclosures by funds and advisors. And this proposal would also provide investors with decision, useful quality, and quantitative information on how a fund or advisor takes into account DSG factors in decision-making. Again, these rules would help provide comparability and consistency, but most importantly, would require funds and advisors to, to stand behind their ESG claims. I also have a fund names proposal that was designed to ensure that there's truth in advertising. Can the fund back up its claims about its environmental focus? If not, it shouldn't be able to make those claims, right? And of course, we've received robust comments on these rules and we're continuing to review them, but I think Broadly, as an issue of importance to investors, ESG is not going away. So we need to figure out how to best protect investors that consider such factors. And I think it's important to remember that ESG doesn't just mean climate. It encompasses other issues like human capital, mm -hmm. workforce development, which I've talked about previously. But let me turn to some general thoughts that go to the processes that we employ in our rulemakings. We're numbers people, as I mentioned. I think it's really important to have the best data and the best research available when we're trying to understand the economic benefits of a rule, not just its, its costs. There's a lot of focus on costs, but there needs to be a substantial focus on benefits as well. We should also try to be mindful of some of the underrepresented groups or the unequal distributional effects that our rules can have on some groups versus others. For example, different racial groups, different income groups, older versus younger investors. I, I'm fully supportive of efforts to incorporate more investor testing into the rulemaking process. Our disclosures are mo most helpful when they can be understood by your average retail investor. That's just, yeah. to me, a, an article of faith. Mm -hmm. you know? If you can't understand what you're reading, what's the point? You can't make an informed yeah. investment decision if what you're looking at doesn't provide that for you. Right. So I am a strong believer in the power of clarity. And I hope everything I've said here has been clear <laughs> in that spirit. <laughs> so I think it's important to strive for this kind of retail investor transparency and clarity. And I fully support whatever tools we have at our disposal, including those housed in the Office of Investor Advocate. Let me say something about access to justice issues. Please. I think a key question is, that, you know, what's more fundamental to protecting investors and ensuring that they have access to justice when they feel they've been harmed? Mm -hmm. It was great to see the Congress included report language in the omnibus bill that passed late last year. And it requested a report from the, from the commission on the use of mandatory arbitration provisions and investment advisor contracts and the effects that these contracts have on harmed investors. As you know, investment advisors who have a fiduciary duty to their investors help families save for some of their most important financial decisions, buying a home, saving for retirement, college. 
But currently, clients of investment advisors don't have the same protections when it, when it comes to arbitration practices that customers of broker-dealers do under FINRA rules. And I think that's a cause for concern. If it's too expensive for these clients to pursue arbitration, if they can't participate in class action lawsuits, if they don't have access to basic information regarding unpaid awards and complaints that have been brought by other customers, this is very concerning, especially in light of the growth of the IA industry in recent years. Mm -hmm. I look forward to learning more about how prevalent these provisions are and how they affect investors. And this data will be very helpful in assessing that. You spoke a little earlier, Commissioner, about the importance of clarity in rulemaking, in communication, and disclosure on behalf of companies. So, Kurt, let's address our favorite topic of clarity, yes. digital assets. <laughs> so clear, so transparent. Commissioner, in, in the November 2022 speech entitled Digital Assets, Putting Investors First, you noted that, quote, there are nearly 10,000 tokens and hundreds of digital asset platforms on which customers can buy and sell these tokens. By some estimates, one in five adult Americans has purchased digital assets, end quote. The prevalence or popularity of these tokens would seem to implicate those investor protection issues that we've been talking about. And in that speech, you explained that, quote, you approach issues in the digital asset market from the perspective of a working family or working person who is considering purchasing or investing in digital assets, end quote. Again, kind of a theme we've talked about today. So kind of Opening up this Pandora's box for you, Commissioner, what are those investor protection issues that you see in the digital asset space and, and what keeps you up at night thinking about those working families? I do indeed see some concerning investor protection issues in this space. In my short time here, I've voted on numerous important enforcement actions involving fraud and registration issues in the digital asset space. So fraud is obviously harmful to investors, but I also see Registration violations by issuers and intermediaries is harmful because it deprives investors of important protections and the risks that these businesses face and other disclosures that are important for investors to have. So I pointed out in my speech at Brooklyn Law School, as, as you may have seen, that the White House executive order on digital assets, the reports from, stemming from that executive order identified a number of concerning risks in this space. And all of them have a negative impact on retail investors. For example, there are high levels of fraud. There's a lack of transparency and disclosure of information to the public. The market is highly volatile. Values fluctuate substantially. And there are some very troubling conflicts of interest in what are essentially highly centralized crypto trading platforms. So when I consider those risks in the context of a largely unregulated and opaque space, it, it troubles me a lot. The vast majority of tokens aren't registered. The intermediaries aren't registered. And again, registration gives investors important protections. So when the industry deliberately and consciously decides to operate in this manner, it has significant investor protection implications. I think on top of that, the crypto market's rapid growth in recent years has been accompanied by this narrative that it can serve as a more effective and equitable wealth-building alternative to traditional finance. And it's targeted especially at low-income and other underserved communities. Communities, of course, that the traditional system has often left behind. There's no question that these are serious problems. There are inequities in traditional finance, and they've been very difficult to address. And 
no one has all the answers. But it's also not surprising to see that surveys show that low-income and underserved communities are investing in digital assets in, in increasing numbers. But when I look at the risks in this industry, I am really troubled by the prospect that they can have a potentially outsized and adverse impact on low-income and underserved communities. Um, and it's particularly concerning to see ill-intentioned actors use false promises of wealth to construct affinity frauds and, and to target these communities. So we've seen these risks play out over the last several months, and I really you know, feel for the retail investors who were affected by the troubling events, starting with the FTX bankruptcy. I think if you look at any you know major financial publication or, or some of the things, Kurt, that I know you and I follow, you'll it's hard to disagree with. There's it, there are a lot of issues with with digital assets in terms of fraud, in terms of misleading representations. But identifying the problem is only half of the issue, right? What do you think that the SEC can or or should be doing to help bolster that protection for investors in this digital asset space? We're doing a lot, and I think you're seeing enforcement stepping up and stepping in to hold wrongdoers accountable regardless of the nomenclature, whether it's lending, governance tokens, staking, or some other term. If you're offering something that meets the definition of a security under the federal securities laws, then that needs to be registered. That offering needs to be registered or it needs to qualify under an exemption. That's just the way our laws work. And it's great to see that enforcement is taking these actions, both on the fraud and on the unregistered offerings context. And going back to limited resources that I alluded to earlier, mm -hmm. keep in mind that enforcement needs to consider misconduct across a $100 trillion capital market, far beyond just the relatively small crypto industry by comparison. So I think enforcement is doing what it can to protect investors who are harmed in this space. But in terms of what else we can do, I think we can use our voice to communicate with folks about the risks of this market. As I mentioned earlier, an informed investor is a protected investor try to get as much information as possible about the risks involved. And I encourage listeners to review the crypto assets section of investor.gov. And uh, let me also say a couple of things about some of the arguments you'll, you'll, you'll hear from the industry. And I'm referring here to the claims by certain proponents that the SEC is engaged in regulation by enforcement. Another claim is that we haven't given guidance or enough guidance. I don't agree with either of those arguments. There's plenty of guidance from SEC published guidance and no action letters to legal precedent. We have decades of legal precedent on what is a security under the federal securities laws. We have multiple legal precedents in the crypto context, and we're simply applying the federal securities laws as Congress intended. So to put a finer point on it, my, my impression is that those in the industry who repeatedly claim we are engaged in regulation by enforcement and say that there's a lack of guidance, they're not really asking for guidance my impression is that they may want the SEC to tell them that we, we shouldn't enforce the federal securities laws in the crypto context. But I can't look away when I see violations that it would be a dereliction of duty. And I made a commitment when I was sworn in to uphold the law. So to me, that's just a fundamental value that mm -hmm. I have to abide by just because I believe in it. <laughs>
Okay, Daniel, cue the music. This is always our favorite part of getting to speak with any of our former or, or sitting commissioners. Uh, Kurt, you and I have always had a great time getting to know these individuals as humans much more than than just voting blocks at the commission, right? <laughs> so we've talked about speech titles with Commissioner Purse. We've talked about, you know, some activities off and on Broadway with, with some of our commissioners as well. We'd encourage all of you to go back and listen to those episodes. But I know we want to talk a little bit with Commissioner Commissioner Lazarago about some of his personal interests and maybe some recent events we can chat to, Kurt. Yeah, I mean, I love this because it is leaning hard into something I care it about. Is. We're not talking about the Buffalo Bills today. Not We're going to actually talk about a different kind of football. You know, Commissioner, I understand that you are a big soccer fan and you will, of course, know that we've had a World Cup in recent months. So <laughs> Absolutely. we got a couple questions for you relating to the World Cup and see, see what your reactions are. You know, first... I would love to hear your take on how the U.S. men's national team performed at the World Cup, getting through to the round of 16. Mm -hmm. Maybe some some good signs, but what's your take? I think they played quite well. It, it was a difficult field, but overall, you know, they did their best. I think the, the challenge, as always, in that kind of high-pressure situation is you have to get the ball in the back of the net to... To move to the next round, right? I think and I think reasonable minds agree, right? Across, across the spectrum. And I think the team was well organized. I was impressed by by the organization on the field. Mm -hmm. Of course, at the end of the day, you need to you need to score goals, and that's where I think we need to step up our game. That said, we do have in the horizon the women's World Cup in that's the right. summer. Yep. And I'm a huge fan of the women's team, the U.S. women's national team. So I look forward to seeing them clinch their fifth title. Yeah, reach some higher <laughs> heights than the men's team, yeah. Exactly. It's going to be exciting for sure. And I appreciate the comments about putting the ball in the back of the net. I am currently a suffering Chelsea fan, and we... My daughter is too. Oh, I like her already. <laughs> can we get her? Is she yeah, available? <laughs> two weeks from now, we'll see if we can get her on. So uh, while, while Chelsea and the U.S. men's national team have Christian Pulisic in common, they also have maybe... Not quite enough goals here <laughs> lately. Very We're, interesting developments with Chelsea mm -hmm. in recent since yeah. Potter arrived as as the manager. Yeah, but and that, my daughter gets very frustrated with the the, the lack of progress and, and the game this weekend or this past the last I forget who they played they, they Leeds. won they played yeah. Leeds and yeah. they you know they beat Leeds one nothing but it wasn't the most resounding win for a team that has a lot of talent. And so I cheer with her because she's she's a fan. And but it was a fantastic weekend for the in the English Premier League this weekend with uh, the Arsenal you? game and uh, okay. the Liverpool Manchester the Liverpool drubbing of Manchester United <laughs> um, seven nothing was incredible. I've got some family friends who would very much agree with that, and some others who, who <laughs> very would disagree. Not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> stronger yes, the other way. Friends on both sides. Yeah, right. yeah. but it was a thrilling game just to watch from the perspective. I, you know, the Premiership is a, is a great league to mm -hmm. to, to watch yeah. just for the entertainment value. Of, of you know, there's always going to be an interesting weekend in, in in England. So, and this one, this past weekend was no exception. Hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll I'll risk asking this. At, you know, maybe I'm going to be horribly disappointed. So yeah. we'll see. But the, who's your team? So we're in Washington. There are partisan questions, and there are really partisan questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to stay neutral and say that my well, not neutral on a club team, but mm -hmm. yeah. uh, of course, my favorite teams are the U.S men's national team and the U.S. women's national team. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're neutral on a club team. <sighs> that's, I think that's a big dodge here on the podcast. <laughs> so that's too. all right. Yeah, so that's going to be the headline from this episode. <laughs> I will say that my daughter, is, as I mentioned, is a Chelsea fan. My son is a huge Barcelona fan. We are a pro-Messi household. I know that the world is divided between Messi and Ronaldo fans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, We were thrilled to see Argentina win the World Cup and Messi 
winning the World Cup. So another debate in in my family as well. I have <laughs> a nephew who just text, texts me pictures of of Messi and pictures of goats, and I'm not sure what to make of that. But, <laughs> I think there's you know, something related to that. I'd have to go. I'll, back. I'll often take the other yes, side of that argument, even if the stats aren't with me. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> oh, the stats. Speaking of numbers, the numbers are incontrovertible here. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's extraordinary. That. It's extraordinary. Commissioner, thank you so much for being generous with your time and joining us today on the podcast. You know, I think we covered a lot of great ground and and also have a lot of things to look forward to, right, with this commission and, and some of the things coming down the pike. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again for inviting us to come visit you here in the office. It really is good to do this in person. Mm -hmm. It's my pleasure to have you here. And, and so glad to hear that you're a Chelsea fan and that you're a <laughs> follower of the game. And great to have that conversation as well as all these other important topics that we covered today. So absolutely. thank you again. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, SEC Commissioner Jaime Lazarga. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at EcomoffCPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.